Hello and welcome to a new episode of the CTO show with Mehmet. My name is Mehmet. And as you know, in each episode, I share some information about the latest trends, insights, strategies in topic like cybersecurity, digital transformation, emerging tech, startups and entrepreneurship. And sometimes I have thought leaders and innovators and entrepreneurs to let them share with us, you know, their uh, expertise in the industry they are in and how they are making impact in the world of tech and business. And today I'm very pleased to have with me on the show, uh, Alex. Alex is joining me from the US. Alex, he is the, an entrepreneur for a long time. I will leave him to introduce himself and what he does. All right, so thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on the show. My name is Alex Fink. I'm the founder and CEO of The Other Web or Other Web Inc. Right. Um, we are a company that is dedicated to trying to fix the world's information ecosystem. Or in other words, if we make it a little more practical, we want to help people consume higher quality information. Now, the way that works is first, we've developed a set of filters that evaluate information and figure out what is junk and throw it out. And then we created an information platform that aggregates content from all over the web, news, commentary, podcasts, research studies, everything we can get our crawlers on. And then we filter the junk out and we create a feed for people that they can customize so that they decide what they consume instead of social media deciding for them. Great, great. What was your I mean, motive, Alex, to start this? What, what how it all started? So it's been brewing in my mind for a very long time, right? And I've been an information junkie for a long time. So I've been watching this ecosystem deteriorate basically throughout my life. And almost every single outlet, if you look at it today, if it existed 20 years ago, it was better 20 years ago. They're all becoming worse. And so I was trying to figure out why for a long time and trying to figure out what incentives drive them towards all becoming clickbait, essentially. Now, on a personal level, I've been building perception systems for 15 years. So cameras, computer vision, that sort of thing. And so sometime last year, I had this crisis of conscience of, does the world need more cameras? And I decided it doesn't, and I need to do something more useful with my life to avoid having this disconnect where I build cameras to make money, but I keep thinking that the biggest problem is that people are consuming junk. So I decided to connect those two and actually start devoting my time towards fixing this big problem that I see in the world, that everything around us is becoming junk and that's what people consume. That's, I mean, it's very um, inspirational, I would say, um, especially, you know, like everyone, as you said, they try to make money, but for you, like, it's like you, you are on a mission. Now, if I can, you know, ask you this, so, it's all about misinformation, right? And all these things. So how do you think artificial intelligence can play a role in fighting against, you know, this misinformation propaganda and how you at uh, other web, you are leveraging this in, to filter the content? So first of all, let me say that it can play a role in both directions, right? And especially now that you're seeing these kind of big advances in generative AI, they can play a role in making things worse because if you think about what it took 10 years ago to write a clickbait article, like you had to A-B test various headlines, you had to actually compose reasonably coherent text, you don't have to do any of that stuff anymore. ChatGPT can do that for you. And so right now that same person generating junk all day can generate 10 times the amount of junk that he used to generate a year ago. So 
if left unchecked to its own devices, this entire ecosystem will get worse because of AI. Now, the way we view AI is thinking, okay, what is needed to clean things up? Probably more editors, and we need those editors to be more consistent. We need them to never have a bad day. We need them to have great throughput. So essentially, we are training models that behave as newspaper editors, right? So we take some particular trait, like checking the headline to make sure it matches the body of the article, and we train a, body, a model that does just that, right? And it does it almost as good as a human editor, but it never has a bad day and <laughs> never, yeah. And it can be completely transparent. So we also opened the source of all our models. We made them source available because we want people to be able to actually look at them and see there's nothing hidden in there. We're not just randomly penalizing everybody who's right-wing or everybody who's left-wing. We're just trying to train it on some academic data sets or data sets that we scramble together to make them as balanced and clear as possible. So that's where AI can do some good, but ultimately it's a kitchen knife. You can make a salad or you can stab someone. It's up to you. <laughs> yeah. So if, if I understood right, so should we say that your platform would get better with time because the you know it's a matter of fact the better you train a model the better it becomes later so is this like what we sh should expect from from uh, other web absolutely it gets better in time because we gather more data and we feed that back and retrain the model but also because we get feedback from our users so the initial set of models we did our entire feedback was we showed some examples of the results to five friends that I have, and they told me whether it kind of conforms to their intuition or not. So that's a very low bar for like the last stage of just testing your model against reality, right? We certainly didn't have the budget that GPT-4 had now where they had thousands of people working for nine months, if I understood correctly, right? ChatGPT-4 uh, uh, was done in summer. They released it now. Right. So this entire time they've been doing uh, human feedback, essentially. So now we have natural human feedback. We have a quarter million users that actually read the news and they flag stuff that seems off. Right. That's a big piece of feedback for us. Right. We can al also contact them and ask them. And now we also rolled out uh, a version of the app that essentially forces the users to interact with content a certain way. Right? They have to swipe an item to get to the next one. And the direction of their swipe is feedback for us about how good this item was. And so over time, we will learn to incorporate that real human feedback as well into making our models better. And I'm talking here about the filtering models. I'm talking about the sorting of the feed. And I'm also talking about things like summarizers because we show users a summary of the article that we create instead of the original excerpt from the article. Yeah. like. Maybe this is should be also related, but like you, you started this so people can get, as you said, like more clean um, and uh, remove the junk from from their feet. But in general, like what do you think you know people should really care about, especially in this you know we are living now in a in a world where you have a lot of things coming in. Something comes from the mainstream media. Something comes from digital media, something comes from even, you know, companies where they work. So what do you think, you know, they can do to navigate better this complex landscape of online information? So I think the best analogy to keep in mind is 
the way we treat food, right? Information is food for the brain. So the way that we look at improving your normal diet is probably the way that we should look at improving our digital diet. So when it comes to normal food, if you go to the doctor, doctor tells you you're unhealthy, you need to eat better food. You come back home, what's your next step? The first step is probably going to be to cut out the things that are obviously just junk. They're terrible, right? The empty calories. Like don't put sugar in what you drink. Don't eat cookies all day. Remove the obviously bad stuff. That's step one. So we try to help with that. But obviously, users still need to pay some attention to other sources of empty calories that they have. Now, once you do that, your job's not over. You still have to figure out how to balance the things that you do it in a reasonable way. And I've seen some pretty crazy studies about what happens when you overdose on one type of content. There's a study from 2013 where researchers compared people who were at the Boston Marathon bombing and actually witnessed the bombing to people who watched six hours of news coverage about the bombing. The group that watched the news coverage had higher chances of PTSD than the group that was in the event. So news is obviously good. You want to know what's going on in the world. But 15 minutes is good. Six hours on a single bombing is probably really bad. Yeah. Right. And so you have to learn to balance what you have. And there's many different sources of information we could consume. Could be dance videos on TikTok, could be serious news coverage, could be books written by somebody 2000 years ago about philosophy. Right. You want to balance all of these out in some reasonable way. What is it? That depends on you. There's probably different preferences, just like with diets, you have the keto people and the vegan people and the Mediterranean, all of these, right? They're all better than just mindlessly consuming what's in front of you. So I think it's the same thing with information. You should just sit down, maybe track a little bit what you're consuming right now yeah, and try to determine what you want to do. I want to mention one more thing with regards to how we handle it in the other web in that the vast majority of platforms out there try to maximize your time on site because then they can show you more ads. That's their incentive. But if you think about your incentive as a human, you don't want to maximize any single food group. Why would you want to spend too much time on any particular site? You want to get as much value from this site in as little time as possible, right? You don't want to spend as much time as possible on TikTok. And so, but the average person spends an hour and a half a day on TikTok, which is pretty bad if you think about it. So our approach to it is we want to help you to get as much value as you can and then stop. There's no reason for you to just continue consuming more and more and more. We think that if you tell us you want to read 50 summaries of articles per day, we're going to stop you at 50 because you don't want to read more. 50 is your quota, right? Uh, it's counterintuitive. It goes probably against financial incentives. It's why we had to register as a public benefit corporation because I think as a C-Corp, we would not be able to do this very long, right? Our investors would force us to maximize time on site like everybody else does. So how do you monetize, just out of curiosity? We haven't started yet. Uh, if We have some ideas on what we want to experiment with, but we want to start those experiments when there's enough users that we can actually see what value they get out of the platform and how we can monetize without interfering with that. One of the interesting hypotheses we have is that we think when users consume content in kind of a passive way, like a feed, eventually they notice something that sparks their interest. Like you see a phrase in an article that you want to know more about. 
if this happens in a conversation, then you typically just ask, what's that, right? But if this happens online, we have this weird pattern where people open the browser window, type something into the address bar, click enter, select the result. And then what they see is usually unrelated to what they search because the entire context was lost in all these transitions, right? So we implemented uh, what's that into the platform. And we see that the average news reader on our platform uses that two or three times per session, mm -hmm. right? And so, and when they do, we show them something that looks a lot like search results. And we know pretty well how to put ads on search results in a way that doesn't interfere with the user's experience. So our hope and our hypothesis right now is ads on search results are enough and we never need to put ads on the feed because that's annoying and we don't want to do that. But ultimately we have to test and see how users react and make sure users are happy. Yeah, that's really interesting model, I would say. Now, my understanding and what we were discussed is, you know, like uh, having this uh, garbage cleaning, I would say, of red content, right? Now, something I brought many times on on uh, on the on the show is about defake, where I talked myself, you know, about you know defake and what's happening, and even I I tried to do a if you want to call it a proof of concept where I used multiple AI tools and, you know, I, I made myself a video. Of course, it was like still a better version of that software, but we've seen recently with the generative AI really things that are scary. How do you think this can be treated? I mean, from, you know, the mission you are in now, because you're trying to remove, right? Like fake news, you're trying to, to clean something which is nonsense. How do you think you can tackle this. So it's an interesting problem and there will be a sort of an arms race between the fakers and the guys who try to spot the fakers, right? The way that I would view this is first of all, if you look at all the different types of bad content out there, content that is faked on purpose with effort from the faker is actually the minority. Most of the bad content out there is not fake news. It's just not news at all. Right? It's CNN publishing an article with a title like stop what you're doing and watch this elephant play with bubbles. That's an actual CNN article, right? So I think that to actually focus on thinking critically about content and trying to notice the fakes, we first have to get rid of the obviously bad stuff. The stuff that is bad just based on form without even looking at the substance. And that is the majority. So once you clean all of that out, you will be left with the more stubborn cases of Russian propaganda or of uh, the Democrats trying to create actual fake stories about Republicans or Republicans trying to create actual fake stories about Democrats. Those will be harder to spot. And I don't think you can ever clean it out completely. So even if you look at science, right, you look at scientific peer-reviewed publishing, the last figure I saw is that in almost every decade, this figure is kind of fixed the number of completely fake experiments published or papers published is about 14%, right? So 14% of everything you see that is published in peer-reviewed journals is usually a paper that describes an experiment that either didn't happen or the result of the experiment is not what the paper says it is, right? It's hard to spot. Like you can't ever, if you're a peer reviewer, you cannot just drive to somebody's lab and start counting the mice, right? You have to believe them when they tell you I started with 17, 13 survived, therefore this is the death rate, right? So 
typically peer reviewers focus on form. They don't focus on going to the lab and double checking the number of mice. They just see, okay, structured correctly, described correctly, headline matches abstract, matches body, correct references. All right, clear to publish. Detecting whether something was fake all along might take years. You will not find it in real time. So let's start from the easy problems, then the intermediate problems, and maybe there will be some number of intractable problems that we cannot fix. Now, when you're talking about deep, deep fake videos, that's an interesting conundrum in that you will see those people will create those videos, then a journalist will write about it, and then we will pick it up in our aggregator. So to some extent, the best we can do is cross-reference between the journalists, because again, we cannot be the guys who verify the video itself. We are writing about the person who wrote about the video in some sense. And so the best we can do is come up with some heuristics on how do you cross-reference? Maybe if left-wing outlets publish something, right-wing outlets say that it's fake, then it's only half true until both sides agree on it, right? Um, that's actually a heuristic I use for myself. Generally speaking, things that are obviously true are typically things that people who disagree on everything still agree on, right? Otherwise, if one side says it's true and the other one says it's not, it's probably only half true at best. So yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think it's entirely solvable. We will continue to develop better tools. The fakers will continue to develop better tools as well. So it will be an arms race. Yeah, it's similar to, you know, because I cover cybersecurity as well at the same case, right? So always you have the um, researchers trying to, you know, close the gap. And then you see the other side, the bad guys, they are also using, you know, latest technologies. And so it's like an race that is never ending. But one thing which is also like um, very interesting in, in what you're trying to do. So usually, you know, you try to keep people, and you said this, you try to keep people on your platform as much as possible. And now you're doing the complete opposite. I mean, in a sense that you're telling people enough, right? Yeah. But from user behavior perspective, do you think like this will be something that the end user will, will, will be fine with it? Like, or like, have you done some, some, I mean, testing on that? So testing is ongoing and so far the number of users is growing pretty fast, right? But we'll see at what point we need to cross the chasm, right? We were going to probably hit the ceiling at some point with early adopters and then have to change what we provide to fit more normal users, right? I don't know when that transition point is coming, but it's coming at some point. So we're still looking at that feedback. It's not that we're telling users enough, right? I think what we actually implemented is a congratulations. You're now well-informed. You reached your quota for the day, right? If they want to continue, they can continue, but at least they got this reminder. This was your quota. You're done. It's <laughs> Do you really want to keep going, right? Right. It, but it's also phrased as a reward, which gives them positive emotion instead of negative emotion, right? Um, but at least that's the hypothesis. We still have to test all of these nudges uh, that we built into our system. So I don't know. I'm more worried about a different angle to all this. My real concern is that what every other tool does, it's not just that they're trying to maximize time on site, but they're trying to maximize your time on site by using the tools of addiction, right? by variable rewards to everything that you see, by triggering strong emotions so that even if that emotion is negative, you crave strong emotion next time you see a headline, right? 
And people have gotten so accustomed to these oversized emotions whenever they read the news that now when we give them a clean version of the news that doesn't have any of that hate or agitation or anxiety or that kind of stuff, they might be missing something, right? They might have been so accustomed to, I know, the sugar-laden version of a cookie that now that we give them a real organic cookie, they don't know what to do with it anymore, or at least a lot of people won't. And so that's my big concern. And that's where most of our growth hacking experiments are focusing. It's what can we substitute the bad stuff with once we remove it? Because it seems like just removing might not work. It's again, just imagine that some company decided to remove all the sugar out of all their cookies. People yeah. aren't going to buy those cookies, right? You have to put at least some erythritol back, something to make it resemble what people are used to eating, right? So that's kind of our big challenge. I think the challenge of reminding people that their quota for the day was 50 and they're above 50 now, I don't think people are going to revolt against that. That sounds like just a pure benefit to them, right? Yeah. But removing the team sport vibe of just hate the other guy, people might re revolt against that because they're enjoying the team sport or at least they think they do because they're so accustomed to it, right? Yeah. One thing also that came to my mind, how you can deal with, I mean, do you have anything that can, um, you know, overcome gated content? So right now we try to avoid it because we respect the fact that content is gated, right? The reality is most of the gated content is actually gated in a way that only stops humans and does not stop crawlers at all because they still want to be indexed by every search engine out there, right? And so if I just point my crawler to a link from Financial Times, it's going to scrape the full article from Financial Times. Do I want to publish even just the headline or the summary of that article? No, because it seems to me like if they put a gate in front of Financial Times, they're telling me something. They're telling me this is for my subscribers only, right? And so we respect that. And typically, initially, we're just essentially scraping all the links that somebody posted on Twitter accounts we follow. That was the first version. And then we noticed a lot of those links, once I click on them as human, I see a paywall. So we started adding a blacklist to the tool of avoid this domain, avoid this domain, avoid this domain. And we try to maintain it so that we avoid every domain with a paywall. What I should mention is that there is so much content out there that if you're avoiding every website with a paywall, you're not missing any news. Like maybe yeah. you're only reading five versions of this news article instead of 20, right? But you're not missing out on any news of any event out there because so many outlets write about the exact same event, right? And so probably the closest that we come to having a difficulty is business news because just so many of them are gated, right? But even there, CNBC is not gated, right? Um, the mainstream networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, they're not gated and they have a, a business section, right? And so there is enough versions of even business articles to just get all the news you want without ever going to a gated resource. Yeah, I think same applies to tech as well. So, but one, it's like a comment I want to add here. Um, I understand, you know, media companies, they need to make money, right? Um, but putting these strong headlines on a website with ads and being gated is something I cannot understand, honestly speaking. Like 
I, I get too much, you know, like sometimes, why? Okay, I, you want to make it get it, I understand, but why you are pushing to me ads and still I cannot access the content? So um, I, I hope you can do something for this. Um, yeah. Just like two, two things before we, we finish um, Alex with you today. Now, again, like you're using AI and you know when we talk about AI there's the ethical aspect of it right so um, in general how do you think we can keep you know what we call it the ethical uh, responsibility on in in any product that leverage AI especially in something that it's touching you know trying to filter the content to to the to the end user yeah so in our case I think it's actually the answer is pretty simple because we are using only supervised machine learning, right? If we just open the model and we open the data set, everybody can tell us if we're being unethical, right? It's pretty obvious what our model is learning to do based on these two things. And so our answer to this is transparency. We have to show it to the world and they can keep us honest. Like we want to be unable to do anything bad just because if we do anything bad, then somebody will catch it. It's the same, I think, in cybersecurity, you have the same thing. The safest tools are the open source ones, because then if there's any backdoor that somebody built into it, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> then it's open source. Somebody will notice that backdoor, right? That's why there was this uh, big hack of LastPass recently, and all my friends are in LastPass. I'm using Bitwarden. Right, because I don't trust LastPass, the source is closed. <laughs> so I'm only using an open source tool when it comes to something like this. So that's kind of our approach to it. Now, granted, I should put a caveat. We made our code source available, not open source. So people can look at it. They cannot copy it and reuse it. Okay. That's kind of a business decision to be somewhere in the middle between those. Now, there's a bigger problem when you get to giant unsupervised language models that just train themselves on the entire internet, right? what GPT-4 is. I don't think that we can police their ethics. They have to police themselves because we have no way of knowing what they did in some sense. By the time the end product comes to us, all we can do is kind of poke it a little bit from the sides, but we don't actually know what's underneath. And if it was mostly trained on neo-Nazi propaganda, we might not know, right? So it's up to them and here, I hope that we can develop some relatively standard models of ethics, but I'm also a little bit skeptical because I don't think we have those for humans, right? The ethical models that we have for human behavior are pretty bad if you think about it. Um, in fact, they're kind of different in each sphere, right? So if you look at the legal sphere, what we have is purely deontic ethics, right? Somebody wrote a law, even if that law is outdated, and let's say the law in the US on eavesdropping was written in 1973, we still follow that law as written, even though it was written in 1973, right? So it's it's yeah. inefficient, but that's what we have, right? Should we have that for AI? Obviously that model would fail because AI just moves too quickly, right? Then once you talk to the entrepreneurs themselves, a lot of them follow some version of utilitarian ethics, right? Basically, if the result is good, then the action was good. And that's pretty stupid because when you make the action, you cannot predict the result. So <laughs> how is that an, an ethical standard for make for choosing good actions, right? So I don't know. Uh, I hope that we can come to some version of 
Greek virtue ethics when it comes to this sort of thing. But I'm not holding my breath because most humans don't follow that either. So why would AI models follow it? Yeah, it would be very interesting to watch this space. But yeah, I like the you know analogy that you did because sometimes you know I used you know to to go and do consultancies in in different fields with customers, and then you know we touch on the compliance, for example, and you find out on the policies, and you find out that someone wrote that document when he is 25 years back, and okay, I found it like this. I don't know, you know, so I do, but with AI it's dangerous because as you said, it's changing on daily basis, almost. Um, now they are talking about GPT-5 <laughs> um, and people are asking them, no, 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 don't release it yet. We, we still, we didn't digest that one. Um, but anyway, we will see. Final, you know, question for you, Alex. Um, what do you think the future of information ecosystem in overall gonna be in, in the coming years? And content creation and all this space? So I think you have to consider that AI will make, first of all, it will make content creation, at least the low quality content creation, much easier. So you will see an even bigger explosion that you've seen than you've seen in the past one years in bad content being generated. We will be drowning in junk. At the same time, one of the other interesting effects that AI and specifically the chat GPT style generative AI will have is that I think search with search results on the page will probably go away as a tool because you will now have search engines that can just answer your question, give you one answer that was generated instead of here are 55,000 answers to choose from. And that means that most of these websites that generate the junk will get much less traffic from search engines. So combine these two things together. Junk is cheaper to generate but harder to monetize because less money is coming in from search engines, right? And it's an entire race to the bottom where everybody will try to create more and more junk to fight for the last scraps of traffic that are available. Basically, we have to create filters, otherwise we will drown. So I don't know if the filters that we are making are the right ones. Maybe somebody else will make better ones, but whatever it is, we're going to need filters because the junk is coming. It's going to be like a giant avalanche of elephants blowing bubbles to use an example that we just uh, touched upon. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of my dire side of the prediction, but I'll give you a hopeful note as well. If you look at the closest historic parallel to what we're seeing now, right? The printing press was invented in the 1430s. We saw 200 years of inquisitions, witch hunts, 52 religious wars all over Europe. People were drowning in new junk being published that they just couldn't digest or process, right? But then what came out of it is the scientific method in 1635, I think, peer review in 1665, right? And then the enlightenment and then universal literacy all over Europe, right? And so eventually the outcome is good. We just need to learn how to get there without blowing ourselves up. Yeah, cool. And just as a final note on this, I liked your, uh, you know, positivity on this because this is what I'm telling people who, you know, usually are showing like a little bit they are scared. I'm telling them, no, okay, it might be looking scary now, but if you think on the long uh, run, I believe, yeah, as you said, it might be a moment of enlightenment for, for humanity. We need to be careful, of course. Well, Alex, thank you very much for your time today. Um, it was, I think, a very uh, like rich conversation with you on this uh, topic. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. 
with us today thank you for watching or if you are listening as usual if you have any comment if you have any question about this episode or future you know topics you want to bring in please reach out to me by email linkedin or twitter and until we meet in the next episode thank you very much